The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit fiddling with your rabbit ears and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 418 with guests Dan Fernandez and Brian Peek, recorded live Monday, February 2nd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who went snowboarding down Mount Tree Smack. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for your listening pleasure in the .NET world. Indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Hey, we're getting a nor'easter here. Uh, actually, we had it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I just Are you remember radio time shift issues. I, I just had that time shift thing, but you know, we <laughs> the, the northeast has been dumped on with snow and ice this month, and I'm thinking, wh- where's the, where's Al Gore? You know, where's this global warming he speaks of? Yeah, it's been pretty cold here too. It's been ridiculously cold. What, was it you who was saying that it's not about global warming? We're actually headed for an ice age. There's certainly evidence to point to that effect, that one of the side effects of global warming is that it will create an ice age. So, in other words, a swing to one side means a reciprocal swing to the other. Right. Wow. That's going to really suck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking microwave towers in space warming up your cities. Ooh, interesting idea. Hey, just don't turn it up too high and cook yourself. Well, what do we know? We're just stupid .NET programmers. Yeah, so let's write get... software. Shut up. Right, let's get into better know framework. <laughs> well, Mr. Franklin, what are you doing today? Well, today I'm going to shine a little light. And of course, that's what I do in better know framework. I'm, it's not training uh, and it's not an in-depth discussion. It's merely saying these are little pieces of the .NET framework and here's where they are in the namespace stack. Go check them out. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about the Microsoft.win32 namespace, which you may or may not know about. Hmm. 
This provides two types of classes, those that handle events raised by the operating system and those that manipulate the system registry. Cool. So in addition to the common dialogue support and file dialogue support and all that stuff, open file dialogue, there is a registry class which provides registry key objects that represent the root keys in the Windows registry and static methods to access key value pairs. You also have events like session ended, session ending, and session switch, which if we look in the session switch documentation, it says, occurs when the currently logged in user has changed. Isn't that an interesting thing to need to know? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So this is stuff that you can only learn in Microsoft.win32. Learn it, know it, love it. That's better no framework for today. Awesome. So what do you got for us, Richard? I have, well, you'll love this email. I will? Yes. It's from a fellow named Dirk in Belgium. And he says, okay, guys, that's it. I just had to reply now. I keep hearing you ask over the past few shows for who uses Windows Workflow and where are those four F-sharp developers and <laughs> who is into dependency injection anyway? Oh, we never said that, did we? <laughs> well, you can call back the search parties because it's me. Ah, uh, okay. We are currently developing a service internally that involves, amongst other things, the calculation of energy generated by renewable energy sources, wind and solar and so on. No kidding. There are, at one side, some pretty extensive calculations involved that make functional programming really shine. And on the other side, our engineers just love to see the sequence of workflow activities because it makes them feel in control. So we have a mixture of technologies. Workflow, C-sharp, F-sharp, maybe some silver light, all working together to make a world a better place. If that isn't a reason to be developing, I don't know what is. Yeah. So thank you for your shows and keep on enlightening us. Regards from Dirk in Belgium. Dirk, here comes a mug, man. Thanks for the great email. Yeah. And speaking of enlightening, we're uh, we're doing Mondays again. Is that really enlightenment? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know what Mondays is, and maybe we should be plugging other more, uh, you know, respectable shows like DNR TV, Hansel Minutes, or Run As Radio. But no, we we have to. We're going to plug Mondays. Yeah, well, we should plug them all. But Mondays, Mondays is, doesn't even come close to not safe for work is an understatement. It's downright not safe offensive. for human consumption. It's downright offensive. And, Absolutely. Uh, so you shouldn't listen to it if you have sensitive ears. Definitely not at work. Definitely not around kids. But if you want to hear Mark Miller and Richard and I and uh, Karen Mangiacotti uh, laugh ourselves until we pee our pants, you want to check out mondays.pwop.com. And I would recommend listening to the samples first. Just so you know what you're getting. Okay, Richard, this is going to be a great show. I'm very excited because uh, Dan Fernandez and Brian Peek are here to talk about coding for fun. Dan Fernandez is an evangelism manager in the developer and platform evangelism team at Microsoft. He's been with Microsoft since July 2001, working in multiple roles, including the lead product manager for Visual Studio Express and Popfly, the Visual C Sharp product manager, and as a developer evangelist in the Mid-Atlantic District. Prior to joining Microsoft, he worked as a developer at several consulting firms, including IBM Global Services, specializing in web-based and mobile application development. Dan's also the co-creator of Coding for Fun and works on fun open-source projects in his spare time. You can read more about Dan at his blog at blogs.msdn.com slash Dan, I-E-L-F-E. 
Uh, Brian, Brian Peake, is a Microsoft C-Sharp MVP who's been actively developing solutions using Microsoft technologies and platforms for over 10 years. In addition to .NET, Brian is particularly skilled in the languages of C, C++, and assembly language for a variety of CPUs. He's also well-versed in a wide variety of technologies, including web development, document imaging, GIS, that's Geographic Information Services, right, Brian? Yes. Graphics, game development, and hardware interfacing. Uh, Brian has co-authored the book Coding for Fun, 10 .NET Programming Projects for Wiimote, YouTube, World of Warcraft, and more, published by O'Reilly, and previously co-authored the book Debugging ASP.NET, published by New Writers. Brian is also an author for Microsoft's Coding for Fun website, where his Wiimote library is currently the most viewed and downloaded project. You can reach Brian via his blog at www.brianpeek.com. Welcome, guys. Hello. Glad to be here. Well, this is, this is a great topic for me because I've been doing talks at user groups and, and uh, conferences on uh, not, not a wide variety of coding for fun stuff, but on stuff that's fun to me. And I've really enjoyed it. And by the way, I really love the Wiimote library. Totally rocks. Thank you. Everyone loves the Wiimote library. Yeah, why don't we just start by demystifying that? How does the Wii work, and how did you possibly write a library for it? Um, well, the Wiimote is a almost standard Bluetooth device, so you can pair it to uh, to your uh, PC or laptop or uh, pretty much anything that's a, that supports a Bluetooth host. And uh, it's a HID device, which is a human interface device. So Windows has a bunch of APIs to deal with human interface devices, and those are typically mice and keyboards and game controllers, and uh, the Wii just happens to support that profile. So after you pair it with your PC, you can use the HID APIs in Windows in order to find that it's connected to the PC, open up a, a handle to it, and just start reading and writing bytes to and from it. And uh, fortunately, people much smarter than myself have reverse-engineered most of uh, the protocol for the Wii because, again, it's just, it's, just, it's just a stream of bytes to and from. Right. Um, it's a proprietary but, protocol, it sounds it. Exactly, exactly. And what and when I, when I say that the Wii mode is almost uh, 100% Bluetooth compatible, there's that 1% is missing that provides all the HID uh, report descriptors, which would, in a real HID device, tell you, you know, how many axes it supports and what buttons it supports and what you can do with it. All that stuff is missing because... Well, Nintendo are, knows how their Wiimote works. They don't need anyone else to ever support it. So <laughs> right. um, they left all that junk out. Um, so uh, other people have figured out what this protocol is, and even though that uh, it's not that not a standard device, you can still decode those uh, those byte streams that are being passed back and forth and read the accelerometers and the IR camera and the buttons and all the extensions that are connected to it, like the nunchuck and whatnot, and huh. um, with a little... API that I wrote, you can use it for many .NET applications. Now, the the Wiimote, you can, uh, if I'm correct in remembering this, you can um, get all the accelerometer readings, but in order to get, what is it, the, the place that it's pointing to, you have to have some infrared light sources in front of it, like the bar, like the Wii, Wii bar? Exactly. Um, if you have a Wii in your house, it comes with that... Uh, that little bar that sits on top of your television. 
Now, a lot of people think that that's, that that's the receiver, but that's actually, it works the opposite way you think it does. Um, the thing that's on your TV actually contains the infrared LED sources. So there's a little cluster of LEDs on either side of that bar. And on the Wiimote itself, uh, there's, it, it, it's the camera, it's the sensor, which is a 1024 by 768 sensor that can detect infrared light. So when you're pointing it at your TV, the Wiimote can see those two sensors on top of the TV um, and, and it's the Wiimote itself that's processing um, what it sees, and, and that, that, that data is transmitted to the Wii or to your PC via Bluetooth, so you can figure out where in, in 3D space the Wiimote is. Yeah. Without that, without that, you're, you're really just reading sort of turning radius information, exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, you don't actually need a whole bar, do you? Is it only like three or four LEDs that are really needed? Yeah, I mean, you can make your own. I mean, it's just you need a just a you know a couple of LEDs on either side. I've seen people use candles because candles emit enough infrared light for the Wiimote to wow. uh, pick up. Wow, that's funny. Yeah, so uh, if you are really cheap or lazy, you can get two birthday candles and set them up and use it. <laughs> are infrared LEDs something you can buy at Radio Shack or online somewhere? Absolutely, uh, Radio Shack has them. Uh, you can you want to get ones that are a little more powerful, perhaps, than the ones at Radio Shack. Okay. Uh, there's a project in our book, which is the Wiimote whiteboard that Johnny Lee had written a while ago. Um, and it, it, one of the he, there's there's a special LED that he uses for the for the pen that and that uh, can be purchased from DigiKey or a bunch of online sources, which is pretty much the most powerful IR LED you can buy that can still be driven by like a a regular old battery. Now, which one of you did the uh, the Wiimote controlled car? That would be me. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a second. That's pretty cool. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. That, that's, that, that was actually one of the more simple topics in the book, I think. Um, it, it's a hardware project, but I think it's accessible to anyone that owns a soldering iron. So the, the idea is uh, you buy a, a remote controlled car, and typically you want to get the cheapest car you can find, which I get them for about $20 at Target. Huh. And uh, and I, the reason why you want the cheapest one is because they have they have digital inputs on the hand unit. They're not analog, so as you push you know further forward, it goes faster and faster. You want the one that's just either on or off. Oh, okay. It's funny the the more the analog stuff's more expensive. It's more complicated to do. You want the simple one. Absolutely. For this project, yes. <laughs> so get your very very cheap remote controlled car, and uh, I use a a board from a company called Fidgets, which uh, they provide a ton of these little interface boards that allow you to do digital I.O. and analog uh, inputs through USB. Oh, neat. So you don't need to know anything about wiring stuff up to your PC and interfacing it with it on the PC side. You just buy this little board, plug it in with a USB cable, and now you can control digital inputs and outputs. Back in the old days, we used to wire this up to, like, parallel ports and toggle the, the, the pins on and off, so... No more of that. Um, so you buy this little board and basically connect for the four digital uh, outputs on the fidget board. So you solder them to the contact points on your very, very cheap remote-controlled car hand unit. And this is why you want the digital on or off because it's, it's just uh, it's eight connections. You know, you've got the yeah. the common ground and the active point on up, down, left, right. And then with a very quick piece of software, which actually winds up being about eight lines of code, you read the Wiimote's accelerometers, find out which direction it's tilted. So if it's past a threshold, tilted left, right, forward, or back, 
you then toggle the input or the output on the fidget control board, which essentially closes that up, down, left, or right joystick as though the user was actually pressing up, down, left, right. Very so, cool. Pretty easily, you can have kind of a motion sensitive remote controlled car driving around your house. <laughs> you know, I, I, the, I tinkered with one of those little cars years ago as an experiment in anthropomorphic behavior. I wired the, the whole left right control to a pair of, of light sensors and then configured it so it would run towards darkness. And the effect was, if you shone a light at it, it would run away from you. And it would always okay. head for, like, under a chair or under the uh, the table or something. It, it made it look very insect-like. Mm-hmm. And all it That's was hilarious. was avoiding light. Wow. I love that. I think I think we have a chapter for coding for fun too. No, Richard's got a better one. <laughs> Tell him the the parrot story with the dialogic boards. Oh, that's a whole that's bizarre. <laughs> Wait, I had a friend who had an African gray, and this is like in the eighties, so like the very first version of the of the dragon naturally speaking board. Mm-hmm. And we were playing with it ourselves, just a, uh, wiring it into X ten, so you'd say you know light on, and it would turn on the light. Well, the parrot figured it out in hours. And it became a psychological study of what parrots like. It turned out the parrot liked to go to bed early. He would turn out the lights and close the drapes about 8 o'clock. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So the feature we ultimately left him with was we were, I let him turn a radio off and on. And, and he didn't like music much, but he liked talking. So it was always on a talk radio station. And he had an uncanny sense of time. He listened to the same talk show every day from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the morning. And the show he was listening to was like the... It's like made Rush Limbaugh look like a liberal, right? The most right-wing, rabid guy you've ever heard on the radio, and the parrot listened to him religiously. That's hilarious. That's fantastic. Just bizarre. Bizarre, it's right. It's funny what we... You know, the consequences of our actions with some of this wacky technology. But it does seem to come now... And I tell people this when I, when I give my talks, and my... My talk is where I control a real baby grand piano and play it with a keyboard on stage and then put a webcam on the piano and then actually see the keys moving, you know, from the from the stage. So, But I, I tell people that, for me, fun is all about control. It's controlling hardware with software and controlling software with hardware. That, those seems to be the, the most fun projects for me. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah, I think to me the the interesting part is people that build software or for whatever they're passionate about, right? So it's um if you're really passionate about, you know, whatever it happens to be, you'll find somebody that finds some way to hack it or build it or whether it's games or whatever it happens to be to uh build some cool, interesting way to build an app for it. Hey Dan, you worked on the Popfly project, I guess a couple of years ago now, right? Uh yeah, yeah. So what's what's happening with Popfly these days? Remind us um, what it is, too. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think there was some comment that they're looking to review to do something. I I just don't like I'm not the spokesperson, I'm not on the team anymore. No. So I'm not really sure what they're looking to to do with it. Um I do know they had a a, a pretty large and and um user base, total user base at least um when I left, but uh one of the things that they had sort of expanded on was doing the game creator and the game creator really took off. Um, but that being said, I don't know kind of where that stands now. Okay, Cause it was a mashup tool, right? This is about sort of gluing stuff together. Yeah. So Popfly, uh, the mashup tool was the first thing and then they created something called Popfly game creator. 
And what it is is a silver light-based tool that allows you to have... Um, it's basically rad 2D games is the easiest way to say it. Um, so one of the, the chapters in the book is actually building something called Lego Soldier. Right. Now, huh. uh, Lego has this product called Lego Digital Designer. And what it allows you to do is uh, build virtual 3D models of Lego characters. Right. So you can have the guy and you can choose what hair he wants or, you know, um, and it, there's an entire community where people have built like castles, laboratories, all the typical things, and you can create, share, and download these these designs. Now, what we did is actually exported uh, the the 3D models as 2D still images, and then built them um, in Popfly. It's really easy to just take a, a 2D image and then make um, like a character. So we made a, a a soldier that's riding in this Lego vehicle. Um, that you know has like this front sort of grill that he smashes into zombies, um, <laughs> and, and we made that uh, a silverlight character, and it has things like jumping, and uh, you know there's a catapult where it'll launch you in the air, and you you literally increase its acceleration so it can jump. If something hits its backside, it subtracts uh, uh, subtracts its health. Um, you're fighting against a blind scientist who who's gone mad with power that you need to take out. And, awesome. Um, so you get to build like, almost like a, you know, I'd say Mario Kart style level where, you know, there's multiple levels you're going through and, um, all that stuff is just really easy. There's, there's very little programming to do that. I think the only programming in that chapter is, um, to do the health subtraction where like on the game tick, you know, subtract one health. Um, from the user, and then, you know, we have uh, these two rectangles, one on top of the other one, so, like, it starts looking red as you subtract the health from the, the green rectangle. The red rectangle starts becoming visible. Well, and this is sort of an interesting mashup of using the Lego builder to create the characters, but then into Popfly to, to create the game. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, if you've seen the popularity of Lego games, um, you know, you can use that, and in fact, they've built the sets for you, so you can export, use all those sets and build your own Lego game. So uh, this one's relatively tame, but there's a ton of stuff you can do, and, and the images as they export, I, I just literally use paint.net to cut the um, white space from them, but they're great um, to be able to reuse in, in 2D games. So it's a, it's a fun one. People that like Lego games can actually build their own Legos. And one of the things that Popfly is really built on is reusability. So all the characters are exported. So you can, uh, rather than building the zombie yourself, you can just steal my zombie. And you can take Lego Soldier the game and uh, um, modify it as you want to modify it. Or um, even publish to Facebook, which is one of the things that Popfly has built into it. So you can publish games on Facebook. We show how to do that in the book as well. Nice. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. Hey, don't you sometimes wish the Internet was more like television? Instead of looking for some info scattered all over the place, you pick up the remote control, sit back, and enjoy browsing through hundreds of channels. Well, your dreams might be coming true with an exciting new resource brought to you by Telerik, the Telerik TV video portal. Telerik TV is a gateway to all Telerik video resources, webinars, product videos, how-tos, training materials, and much more. 
The videos are organized in a way that makes it easy to find answers to your problems or discover new tips and tricks as you browse various video channels. What's more, Telerik TV was built using Telerik's own RAD controls for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Open Access ORM, making it a great showcase of those products. So go on, pick up the remote, and start watching Telerik TV today at tv.telerik.com. Now, the, there's some other things that you do, like downloading YouTube files automatically and converting their formats. That's, you know, we're talking about Flash here, and Flash is notorious for not letting people download their their stuff. So that that's an interesting hack. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, now downloading U- videos on YouTube is, is relatively common, and I say that just because um, Real Networks has, has built that into one of their players to download YouTube videos. But what I wanted to do was, and this goes back to like the, the personally passionate is I love YouTube and I want to be able to take the top videos every month or my favorite videos and be able to just take them with me. You know, I end Ah. up traveling a lot for work, but uh, there is no YouTube offline. So I started looking into this and what you can do is um, within the code to, to, work around YouTube, because YouTube actually tries to restrict you, is you can screen scrape their page, um, pull variables out of their uh, JavaScript arguments that they pass into their Flash player, including um, a token ID that you need to download the video, and then use their direct URL to start downloading that video. And what what will happen is you can just do this in a browser. It'll start downloading the video as a FLV file, Flash video file. So um, what we've done is built a way that you can subscribe to an entire RSS feed. So you're not just downloading one video. You're downloading, you know, um, every hot video this month or this year or, and, or a custom search. Let me download every Microsoft video. Yeah. Um, and it downloads the Flash video. It converts it to WMV um, or MP4 and then syncs it to your iTunes or Zoom so you can take it with you. Excellent. So the goal is, you know, you know, you click a couple of buttons and you instantly have 75 YouTube videos that you can take with you and easily, you know, delete, watch. And uh, it's YouTube offline. Wow. Uh, all right. So I got to I got to know what you're doing with World of Warcraft. There's a lot oh, of people that play this game. Not, I'm not one of them. Um, I actually enjoy the free time that I have. <clears throat> but um, in other ways. Uh, so, so I am a World of Warcraft addict, and and hi Dan. Um, but <laughs> but uh, um, our goal here was um, uh, one of the projects I work on is uh, Add-on Studio for World of Warcraft, and what that does is it's a Visual Studio IDE for building uh, Warcraft add-ons. So Warcraft has built this. Um, uh, is built on this language called Lua and a UI presentation layer called FrameXML. And what we do is explain how you would build add-ons for Warcraft, assuming you're a .NET developer. So we explain things like FrameXML is very similar to XAML. Um, uh, what you'd use for an image is called a texture um, in their language. You know, these controls map to these controls. Here's some of the things you need to work on. Um, to sort of map these things. Now, Lua is a very uh, functional language, but the IDE itself gives you IntelliSense. It gives you, um, using their APIs, um, some basic refactoring, um, and it's a GUI. So it's a what you see is what you get. You drag a button on there, and you can size exactly where it goes. 
Um, so when we built the tool, one of the things we wanted to show is, wouldn't it be cool if we could build an app on top of that? And what we wanted to do was actually have a way to communicate from the outside world to inside the game. Now, the challenge there is World of Warcraft doesn't have an API to, say, read from the file system or read from memory or anything else. They, they explicitly block that. Now, the one thing they do do is when you reload the game or when you first start the game, they will write out the frame X, they will read in saved variables for your frame XML. And those saved variables are typically things like, oh, this person, you know, has checked off this option, so I want to make sure to set that setting. Or this person has set the window should be at this XY coordinate. So those are the saved variables. What we do is actually trick the game into, um, we have a file system watcher that when it actually reads, um, writes that data to save those settings to the file system, our file system watcher is waiting for that event. What it does is realize that event's going and reads data directly into that uh, saved variable file. And what it's doing there is, um, for this example, is building an RSS reader. So you can imagine um, in the in the book we talk about, you know, Scott Guthrie's blog, Long Zen's RSS, um, you know, BBC News. It takes, uh, we have a client application, reads in these RSS feeds using uh, the Windows um, built-in Microsoft Feeds com library. So as long as you subscribe to feeds in, you know, IE, um, it reads those, converts them into a Lua saved variable. We wait for Warcraft to save the game, and then there's that magic, you know, five or ten seconds where we can write data into the game, and boom, uh, the RSS data is instantly updated. So we've cool. built a way to to work around and actually update World of Warcraft. Wow, that's awesome. And you guys are doing most of this with Studio Express? Yes, all the projects. I mean, the obviously things like Popfly, you don't even need Visual Studio right. Express. Um, but yeah, all the all the projects work in Visual Studio Express. So there is a conscious effort here to do this with free tools. Yes, absolutely. I was say it's an interesting way. You know, we don't think about the hobbyist developer much anymore. I think the guys who develop for fun. I think we're all too busy making a living doing development. Yeah, it's one of the things that was sort of interesting when we were first starting uh, the Visual Studio Express line, which is, you know, where I came from, where, um, you know, John Dvorak had written this with the last, you know, computer hobbyist, please, you know, turn off the light saying, you know, (laughs) hobbyist programming was dead and all these people saying it didn't exist. And then once we launched Visual Studio, what we saw was, you know, we had over just in the 2005 version, 18 million downloads of Visual Studio Express. And we surveyed our customers, and, you know, more than half had never used Visual St- any version of Visual Studio before. I mean, that's a whole new audience. Like, it's actually an, a, a great endorsement of the concept of the product. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, we surveyed them, and I think it was like 65% were either considered themselves absolute beginners or beginners. So two-thirds were, like, have very little experience um, in programming. So... We really hit sort of the the nail on the head, and um, uh, while while we didn't know they were there and didn't expect such a huge outcome, like that, there clearly are a lot of people that are just either interested in tinkering or interested in you know building the website for their kids' soccer league or whatever it happens to be. Those hobbies do exist. Sure. Hey, I found that article, the Dvorak article. Will the last computer hobbyist please turn out the lights? <laughs> it's from October two thousand three. Wow. Yeah, it was um for 
you know, for some of us, that was motivation to show that that it does exist, and if we build it, they will come. So, yeah, and if you and look at Visual Studio Express, I think it's the you could argue that it's the most popular development tool on the planet. Like, there's no there's nobody either in open source world or you know in the free products or or even for pay products that has more downloads than Visual Studio Express. Wow. Well, and really? it's also a statement of the, how the markets changed. You know, when in the 80s, everybody was command line. We used command line tools. In the open source world, they're still using command line tools for doing development. But the machines that people own, that non-developers own, that mortals own, are Windows-based or, you know, at least GUI-based machines. And if they're going to do development, they're going to do it in a GUI. And who else has got a free GUI product? Yeah. Yeah, and you know we still see really large numbers of C plus plus developers. So the SourceForge really? projects will, you know, there's a number of them that have C plus plus Express products, or sorry, projects, projects or solutions. So. All right, so I got to ask, what do you do with Twitter? Are you guys Twitter heads too? No. <laughs> <laughs> I I am on and off. I would say. Um, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but but the goal uh, with Twitter vote, and this is this is an application everybody touch, including Clint Rutkus, um, our coding for fun content strategist. But um, for Twitter, it was to be able to build a simple way to to vote. So like um, you have a for people who aren't familiar, Twitter's a microblogging site system. You know you have like uh, 140 characters to express what's going on in the world. Well, what we wanted to do was make a way you can actually vote on things. So um, you know, you could say uh, which, you know, system is cooler, uh, the Wii, the PS3, or Xbox, and then have people respond to you by saying, you know, at username um, PS3 or at username Xbox. And what we do is is listen to those responses and build a dynamic poll based on those responses in Twitter. So it's an easy way for people, um, you know, ideally non-technical people to just add a, a, a voting or poll system to Twitter. Okay. And did you guys actually use it? Like to conduct your own polls? Yeah, actually we um we did it uh for uh our PDC talk. We had a uh talk at PDC for coding for fun projects and uh we asked the attendees to actually vote which which project they want. I think uh Scott Hanselman was doing his baby smash. Right. Um uh, multi-touch baby smash, I think he added in there, um, or the Surface-enabled one, and uh, he won. <laughs> uh, the uh, the World of Warcraft thing is interesting. This whole idea of making... Well, World of Warcraft all by itself is an odd thing, isn't it? I did this talk uh, just a week or so ago at a high school talking about what parents needed to know about their kids online. Yeah. And, of course, World of Warcraft came up. And one of the points I made, and, Brian, I'm afraid you fall into this stat very nicely, that the average player in World of Warcraft is, like, 25 to 35. It's not teenage kids that are playing. I, Dan's the Warcraft guy. I've oh, never, sorry. I've, sorry, Brian. I've never turned it on. I have no idea what it even is. <laughs> it's a game, man, a game. It's, it's a, a time sucker. For God's sakes. It's a lifestyle. It's a time waster. Yeah, it is. It, well, it, 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 is a, a, it is a world, isn't it? Of Warcraft. This extensibility model with, with Extras is, is interesting. Just the, the capability of adding to 
an online game like this. I don't know of any other game that can do this. Yeah, I, there um, there are a couple of games. Um, uh, Half-Life 2 was a good example of a game that had a really large mod community. And um, Flight Sim had, had started this as well. Um, but I guess what was interesting about those games is typically games um, will peak within three months of shipping. With Half-Life 2, when they started their extensibility, they didn't see a peak until about like 12 to 18 months later. And it was because so many people started building add-ons for, um, rather than, you know, uh, fighting in this world, let's actually fight. Uh, Counter-Strike was built out of that. Let's be pirates. Let's um, have a Desert Storm mod. And, you know, the the modding community kind of takes it from there. Um, And a very famous piece of software called Gary's Mod that actually helps you build Half-Life mods. But I think that's one of the key things for World of Warcraft success as well. Um, their add-ons, if you look at some of the add-on pages, they get over 100,000 downloads a day wow. for their add-ons, which is, yeah. you know, in any sort of measure is just a huge number for uh, a total downloads. Yeah, just incredibly successful apps, for, and they're all free mods. What are you guys working yep. on, on now that's um, not in the book? Um, so one of the things we just published is, um, uh, and this is something that we're doing for Coding for Fun, is uh, a guy named Mark Heath who wrote the N-Audio library. And what that allows you to do is programmatically control, like do things like sound effects. What we wanted to do was, if you guys are familiar with Skype, the system where you can just chat with people online without uh, using a phone, he built uh, a plugin for Skype that actually lets you disguise your voice. Wow, that's <laughs> Man. cool. So you can, you know, uh, put your voice louder, add an echo effect, all these different things, and it's a module that just plugs into Skype. Skype will ask you, does this app have permission? You have to have Skype installed, obviously, but um, it goes through, and uh, it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's definitely a lot of fun to play with and just uh, mess with people. I wrote something similar. I wrote, like, Skype. Uh, silence. I, I wrote a, I wrote, uh, a library to both take digital audio as an input and an output using the low-level audio uh, API. So it can basically fire an event on the recording side and pass you a byte array uh, repeatedly. What you do with that, that's just raw PCM data. So then I hooked that up to um, the lame codec using standard input and output in asynchronous um, stream reading and writing and uh, send that down to the lame codec, and that spits back an encoded. uh, That fires an event that gives you an encoded byte array, which is obviously a lot smaller. Then I took that and sent that that, uh, to to the other side using UDP sockets, and on the other side took that, sent it back through lame to get PCM data. That fires the event and gives you back your byte array of raw PCM data from the MP3 data. And from that, I, I call this um, method called stuff buffer, which is a playback buffer. You open a device for playback, and then you call this buff, stuff buffer and pass the byte array, and that sends it down to your audio device. So it's effectively Skype, but you have control over the, over the codec settings with, you know, with LAME, how... how uh, high quality you want the sound to be. And of course, the more high quality it is, the longer the latency. But, but I, did a, um, I did a demo at Dev Connections last year where I had a guy in England 
and we were talking to him, and it was only a couple of seconds delay, which is pretty good for for a VB programmer. <laughs> for a VB programmer? <laughs> I'm talking about me, of course. Right. Um, very cool. Yeah, yeah. actually, we, uh, we did some stuff in the book for one of our apps called PeerCast, which is using PNRP, P, peer name resolution protocol. Nice. And uh, what that allows you to basically do is have a stream between multiple machines across the internet and through firewalls. Um, and that is obviously just, you know, an extensible library. So you could, I, I would assume, do the exact same thing for capturing audio and then being able to send that as a buffer. Yeah, the project you've got in the book sounds like a Slingbox software oh, version. Oh, cool. Yeah, it, it's like Slingbox, uh, the software version. I think the one challenge is PNRP sometimes um, doesn't go through fi- all or old firewalls very well. So if you have an old router that doesn't support um, uh, IPv6 or UPnP, then uh, sometimes um, you can't use it. But I've been able to use it pretty successfully. And uh, if nothing else, it's a cool example for being able to stream, you know, just between machines on your on your LAN. Interesting. So just, yeah, the ability to, to uh, well, who was it told me about this? Clemens Vasters. When he moved to, to Redmond, he couldn't give up his Bundesliga. You know, soccer is big business for, for Germans. And so he had to find a way to get, stream his, his soccer games back to Redmond. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> yeah, he basically wrote a sling box. And then Slingbox came out right afterwards. I was like, dude, you could have just bought the box. <laughs> Yeah, what fun is that? <laughs> this is not about sensible things. Well, I've been I had been working on that library to do what I explained for years and years and years just in my spare time. And and that's the kind of thing that I really like to do in my spare time is find those seemingly impossible projects and just keep chipping away at them. Yeah, I think that's the fun stuff when you're really passionate about something you're like I'm going to make this work. Right. This is going to be so cool. Or you're just solving that personal need of I really need to stream soccer from across the globe. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the Wiimote whiteboard sounds like a very practical thing. And it, it, it is. It's one of the more practical projects in the book. Um, it started life as a project from a guy named Johnny Lee, who was a, a master's student or PhD student. Dan corrects me on this every time I say it. So, so why, don't you, why don't you introduce Johnny Lee, Dan? All right, so some people may know Johnny because he's, he's, like, Internet famous. So um, uh, he got picked as, like, the top 30 innovators under 30. Uh, he's a Ph.D. student from um, CMU, uh, and he actually just joined Microsoft. But uh, he started doing YouTube videos using Brian's library um, to do the, um, the things that Brian mentioned before, where it's actually reading uh, the recording data off. And those videos, one of them became the most popular or top-rated video of all time. And, you know, YouTube's wow. been around for since 2005, and it was in the top 25 top-rated videos of all time and, you know, had 5 million views. And he had multiple videos that had, you know, in the millions of views. So a lot of people just know Johnny from that. Um, and he even got picked to be a speaker at, at uh, TED, I believe it was. Yes. Wow. Um, which if you go see uh, that TED video, it's uh, it's amazing the stuff that he does there. So and it's all um, uh, hacking the Wiimote and underneath the covers, it's all C sharp using Brian's library. 
Right, so, so Johnny actually uses the Wiimote the opposite way it's intended to be used. And he, I, I, as far as I know, he's the first one that mm. thought of it, and we all hate him for that, or at least I do. So <laughs> um, the Wiimote is typically something you hold in your hand and you point at your TV. Right, right. So he's using it in the opposite direction, where the Wiimote is mounted and is now stationary, and you're moving IR LED sources. Oh, that's cool. That it's reading. So you can do a couple of interesting things with that. The first thing he did was this really awesome head tracking project. So you put on a, a pair of glasses that have IR LEDs on either side of them. Um, just like the bar on your television has the IR LEDs on either side. So with these glasses on, as you move your head around, the software on the on the screen is is moving a bunch of, of bullseye targets. And because the... the you can now tell where in space your head is. You can you can move the targets in a way that mimic what it would look like looking out a window into the real world. And I, I can't do it justice by describing it, but if you if you search for them on YouTube, you'll find the video. And I mean, it, it's like looking out a window and watching these things move around. That's amazing. And Very the second clever. project was was doing this uh, electronic whiteboard using the Wiimote. So uh, you can use. Basically, take a take a dry erase marker and pull the felt pen and the ink out and replace it with an IR LED, a battery, and a switch. So you point the Wiimote at your projection screen or your TV monitor, and you use the pen kind of like a mouse. So wherever you want to click or move, you, you press the button on the pen, which turns on the IR LED, and then you, you move it around, and his software takes that coordinate that it's picking up from the Wiimote warps into a flat surface and uh, translates it to the mouse cursor in Windows. So you can stand in front of a very large screen and, you know, draw or point and uh, use it like an electronic whiteboard. That's That's a very cheap electronic whiteboard since it only costs $40 for the Wiimote and a couple of bucks for IR LEDs and the pen. And, you know, People sell these electronic whiteboards. Companies have them for many thousands of dollars, and you can do it for about 50 bucks. And a Wii. And a Wii. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Do you, uh, did you, any of you guys uh, go to CES? I was watching the Consumer Electronics Show coverage on TV and... Uh, some something really interesting that you reminded me of when you said you you put these glasses on, is that I think it was Mattel came out with this system where you put on a headband that has a couple of things that read theta waves uh, from your brain on each side, and then some sensors on your ears. And theta waves are generated by your brain when you're concentrating on something, and the more you concentrate or focus on something the more theta waves you, your brain emits. So taking that, they use that as input for a game where these, these little air blowers blow this foam ball up in the air, and then, and then it goes in through a hoop. And so effectively, you can just stand there 
concentrate on this ball moving, and then in, lo and behold, it moves and then goes through the hoop. Now, that's just freaking awesome. Yeah, I saw this in a couple of places on TV. I watch people do it. Um, I have two things to say about that. One, Atari invented this for the 2600 in the early 80s. It was called the Atari Mind Drive. Really? It, it, it didn't work. And I, I, don't, I don't know if it ever actually saw the light of day or not. I don't think it was ever released, but Atari had it in a game where you could control the game with your mind by, by thinking. They had the idea anyway. They had the idea. Secondly, I'm really wondering if the headband ear thing is just a, a gimmick and that there's really just a couple of accelerometers in it and you subconsciously tilt your head and move your head as you're trying to move No, the I don't think so. The... I, no, he... I saw somebody do it and they stood perfectly still and they looked and nothing was happening and the guy says... It helps sometimes if you get angry at the ball. And then without moving, he just raised an eyebrow and the ball moved. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> but here's the thing. I, 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 you know, it gives the illusion that you are actually doing and moving something. Like you think, go over there and it goes over there. But that's not how it works. You're just really, if you think about it, you're just providing a signal that tells the game to play itself. You know, and the more signal there is the closer it gets to the goal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the game the game isn't just a dumb thing where you think ball move left and it moves left or ball move right. And move. It knows exactly what it's going to do. You're just essentially turning up the juice on it and telling mm-hmm. it to do mm-hmm. it. But it's still cool nonetheless. Uh, absolutely. And I'd love to see a .NET library for that shit. I will certainly <laughs> own one when, when it's released. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just the, this is all about bringing different sensors to the market. I guess the the claim to fame for the remote is it's an inexpensive Bluetooth device with sensors in it. Yeah, it's it's the it's the cheapest device you'll find with a three axis accelerometer, eleven buttons, an IR camera, a speaker, um, and just about every geek has one. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's $40. You can go to any electronic store or department store and buy one and bring it home and immediately start using it. There's no there's no soldering, there's no drivers, there's no anything. You pair it with the PC and you go. Yeah, that's the thing that's incredibly compelling here, is this very inexpensive, amazing collection of sensors. Yep. I had a, a, a guy write me the other day that's using the Wiimote to, uh, he wrote some software to help with patient rehabilitation. So people, they're like stroke victims, they can't lift their arms and they want to track their progress. He's written this software that, you know, every day they use this piece of software holding Wiimotes in their hands and move their arms around in order to determine what their range of motion is and how it's getting better every day or worse every day and exercises to do and uh, it ranks you you, with, with stars. And I mean, it's just like this really awesome tool that I'm sure other companies would develop custom hardware for. And I mean... There you go, a Wiimote, forty dollars, and some and some of your time to use a library and some and some coding, and and here's a a, a valuable tool to help to help uh, people that are sick. You no kidding. I mean, under a hundred dollars, including the remote, yeah, to make that stuff work. Yep. What um, level of programmer do you have to be to to do the projects that are in your your uh, book? Like, could I give this to somebody who? wants to get into programming, but it doesn't want to go through the boring exercises of Hello World and, you know, XamilPad? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think that there are projects for practically every skill level. 
And you've got like with Dan cha- Dan's chapter, the the Popfly chapter. I mean, that's that's a drag and drop environment for creating game. And I think uh, if you know for 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 kids or people that are inexperienced with with development, they can kind of get the feel for what goes into making a game. I mean, there's a little bit of XAML and a little bit of code. I think Dan said there was you know a couple lines of code for managing the person's health bar and whatnot, but they kind of get them into the concepts of learning logic and things like that without having to deal with a full programming language. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got something complex like the Wii mode or an XNA game or the peer cast. I mean, those are some pretty, uh, pretty complex things that require a lot of different moving parts. Yeah. So, um, I think, I personally think there's something in there for everyone. It doesn't seem like you built the book as a, as a, teaching guide per se, but it doesn't sound like it would take much to take this book and almost build a, a coding curriculum around it. It's just a little more interesting than Hello World. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that um, are realizing the the way people learn programming. And, you know, there, there's a serious uh, issue if you look at universities where they're, they're dropping their computer science programs because they will have 12 to 18 students enrolling. And they're just literally cutting it in, say, favor of business programs. They're looking right. for what things they can do to excite people into um, uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math jobs. Um, and one of the things that they've been doing is looking at uh, ways to make learning interesting. Um, one good example is, is uh, you know, ac- building XNA games, where you can actually, it's, it's pretty clear that college kids love playing Xbox. Uh, you know, you can walk them through step by step. Uh, there's something tactile about playing with the controllers, being able to see, you know, their motions, being able to publish games. Um, so we're seeing uh, a lot of universities interested in, say, X and A. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody starts using the book for, say, learning or at least interesting projects. I just saw something on your website that I'm, I have to go order right now, which is a, uh, a USB SATA dock for five and a quarter hard drives it's it's actually part of our uh coding for fun holiday gift guide so it's uh gifts for geeks um we try and have the uh the largest list of programmable projects if you will um and hardware that you can buy that you can program as well as some things that aren't really programmable but like you're like wow that existed so uh the SATA doc was one where i certainly uh needed a couple months ago for my extra laptop drive oh yeah that's a good one. You know, the other USB device you, you use a couple of times here, and I'm thinking about the, the holiday music light one, especially are these fidget boxes. I, lo- I love fidgets. They're amazing. I mean, and they're cheap, too. 60 bucks for a four-relay switch. You could use USB to switch four relays on and off. Mm-hmm. That'll handle line-level voltage. So I guess that, and that's sort of the core of your animated music uh, uh, holiday lights effect. Yeah, that's, that's a... This project was actually on the Coding for Fun site I wrote a couple of years ago. It was mainly just a... I really had no interest in designing holiday light shows, but I just wanted to see if... I mean, it started as... The, as ever, I think everyone in the universe has now seen the guy that has his house decked out to Wizards of Winter by TSO, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Right. Everyone's seen it, and, and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, and no, I didn't like see a, that. What's that all... Tell me about that. I'm... I'm sure you actually have seen this video, Carl. You just don't know the name. The one where the the lights are completely in sync with the music, and he's incorporated the whole front of his house into the effect. Actually, we have one of those houses in our neighborhood here. Right. But I haven't seen that video, no. Um, I, I, I can't let 
uh, GPS go without asking you about that? Because that's obviously potential for some serious fun. Is there any is there any uh, de- GPS devices that are small and portable that you can get access to as a as developer? I don't know, maybe for Windows Mobile. Uh, yeah, actually, we um, we have an old article that was probably done in 2005, and it's just using the GPS device that it's provided with Streets and Trips. And uh, Scott Hanselman shows how to just get the latitude and longitude from the device. Um, hmm. Okay. And That's uh, I think one of the challenges is why we don't do a lot of GPS demos is because most of the time your demoing is actually uh, uh, indoors. Right. So You'd you, have to do a video you never get a GPS signal. So uh, it's kind of a boring demo to say this would be amazing outside. Um, <laughs> To a, to a crowd of folks. But, yeah, so, I mean, once you have those coordinates, you can, you know, um, Virtual Earth, which just has a Restian API, you can just add in those X, Y, and get, say, a map back. Um, or do, you know, the point of interest search, which is another just, you know, sending a, a well-formed URL back. So there's a number of things you can do for uh, GPS applications. The challenge is a lot of the stuff we've been doing isn't for um Mobile, so it would have to be like your laptop, um, you know, maybe you're driving in the car or something, your laptop, and then something plugged in. Um, but I haven't seen uh, that. I think there are a couple, uh, um, trying to think of the name of the company, it's not Belkin, it's some, Garmin, um, has actually uh, released an SDK for some of their GPS devices. So you can do things like logging um, and do some simple um things to read and write data out even easier than, um, say, the USB connection. Doesn't Richard, doesn't the latest Windows Mobile have uh, access to the GPS data? Sure it does. Uh, if they, if the, the hardware has uh, GPS, they built a pretty good library on top of that to make it easier. It's not even the latest one. That was in, like, five. So you could easily write an app in Visual Studio, then, that reads that and then uploads those via, you know, web services or, or REST or whatever. Yeah, the only I don't think it's available through Express, though. Oh, maybe not. Yeah, yeah mobile, you have to have the mobile. Mobile isn't is not. Yeah, that's Although sort of the outside mobile, I mean, that. GPS devices, they all there, there's a common protocol that it it'll send back usually over a serial port. So even if you don't have a Windows mobile device, you have a laptop with practically any GPS device, you can put it into that mobile oh, yeah. and send back the. That's a, with a laptop though, but you know the beauty of GPS is just taking a little phone in your pocket sure. and yeah. Pretty cool, though. It goes. Pretty cool. What uh, What's next? What are, Something that you may not be working on now, but you've got on your sites for the next big project. There's always got to be some project that seems nearly impossible that you want to just go after someday. What is it? Um, so I, I know we have two in the queue. One of them is, um, this is a simple one, but um, it's if you all are familiar with Outlook and use it every day, you're probably familiar with somebody sitting there out of office message. Um, and those are pretty boring visually. Like you can you can maybe add a couple of colors and a couple of fonts. Well, what we wanted to do was actually build a, a Visual Studio Visto out add-in to Outlook. And what it allows you to do is build um, beautiful, even templated um, out-of-office messages. So imagine having an okay. out-of-office message that says, "Hey, if it's my group of friends, don't send them the classic uh, message. Send them, you know, this update from my Twitter or this picture from my Flickr." Or, you know, my Facebook status of where I am right now so people can get jealous. So you can actually have much richer emails that are sent programmatically by having it um, 
running in the background in Outlook. Now, the one caveat is you have to have Outlook running and this add-on running on a machine while you're out of office. But outside right. of that, you can uh, have fully templated um, uh, and personalized out-of-office assistant messages. Wow, that's great. Oh, I, I think there's an, uh, an Eliza element here you could go to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's another start. thing I wrote, guys. I, wrote, I rewrote Eliza in VBNet because there was some old, you know, the Rogerian psychotherapist, there was some old code that worked in older versions of BASIC that was all screwed up with using uh, arrays that had ba- option base one, right? So arrays were one base instead of zero base. And then I, went, I started slogging through it, and, and it just was so ingrained in the programmer's thinking that it was impossible to convert. But, uh, but, but yeah, so, so I got that going. I should give you these projects. Put them in the book, man. Yeah, well, I mean, if nothing else, if you guys want, you know, we're always looking for coding for fun authors and, you know, an open uh, request for your readers as well. If you have cool coding for fun projects, like dust them off, you know, a lot of coding for fun projects are probably 80% done, you know, finish that last 20% and uh, you too can be published on coding for fun. That sounds great. Guys, any last minute words of uh, wisdom, shout outs? Um, Hi, mom. Anything you want to say? Anything cool you've seen online lately? Anything else? So uh, I guess the last one is for people interested in more info for the book, it's c4fbook.com. And uh, even if you don't get the book, you can at least uh, play with, tinker around with the source code um, and, and see some of the images uh, there. Um, as for other cool stuff, I, uh, we had covered this on our last uh, This Week on Channel 9, but some folks found out how to hack those construction signs. And started putting uh, warning zombies ahead messages <laughs> on the highway in Austin, Texas. Yes, I, I, I saw a Nazi, uh, yeah, Nazi zombies ahead sign the other day. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's my, uh, this is just cool. And I love playing with technology when you can just do that. Obviously, don't do that if there's, you know, the bridge is out or something. Yes. But, yeah. Still cool stuff. It is cool stuff. Thanks, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Keep doing what you do. It's great. And we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.